This is Tom O'Connell. Welcome to my podcast, Vegas Fed. In 1990, I was a former Suffolk County, New York cop and assistant district attorney who found himself in the Mojave Desert prosecuting federal cases as an assistant U.S. attorney in Las Vegas, Nevada. The first case I'm going to revisit in this podcast is the kidnapping for ransom, a very substantial ransom, of Kevin Wynn, the daughter of Steve Wynn, the man who revived and reinvented Las Vegas when he opened the Mirage at the end of 1989. It is a story of desperation and greed, evil and stupidity, courage and love, and a lot of hard work in a mission to bring the perpetrators to justice. Las Vegas, the 90s, the new Vegas. The actual birthday was November 22, 1989, the day the grandiose, lavish, sparkling new Mirage was unveiled to the world. The Strip had been reinvented with an exploding volcano, a dolphin show, white tigers, and sharks looming in a huge fish tank right behind the reception desk. The architect of all of it was the young, toothsome, and always tanned Steve Wynn. The naysayers said Wynn would never be able to generate the $1 million each day that would be required to keep the lights on. They were wrong. By 1993, the year of the infamous kidnapping, the Excalibur, the Luxor, the MGM Grand, and Wynn's own Treasure Island would be built. Thanks to Wynn, Vegas was booming, but his world was about to come crashing down around him. On this episode of Vegas Fed... Las Vegas Assistant U.S. Attorney Tom O'Connell is assigned a career case. The kidnapping of casino magnate Steve Wynn's daughter, Kevin. On the morning of Tuesday, July 27, 1993, I reported to work at the United States Attorney's Office at the usual time, about 8.15 a.m. I took the elevator to the eighth floor, exited into a small lobby, and approached the door leading into the U.S. Attorney's office, visible through a large plate of bulletproof glass. After hitting the security code which unlocked the door, I bid the receptionist good morning. Her response was rather surprising and somber. Monty needs to see you right away. Monty Stewart was the U.S. Attorney for the District of Nevada, the top federal law enforcement official in the state. On that morning, I was one of about 25 assistant U.S. attorneys in Las Vegas, and I had been one for almost three years to the day. Monty was the fourth U.S. attorney I had worked for in those three years. The frequent turnover was attributable, in short, to political machinations of which I had little personal insight or, frankly, interest at the time. I will say, however, that it was obvious to all that the lack of stability was not helping morale or the efficiency of our office. Monty had been U.S. attorney for several months, having left a successful private practice in Vegas to accept a presidential appointment. One of the first changes he made to the office structure was to give me the senior litigation counsel position. The SLC is a coveted slot among federal prosecutors. Although there are some additional responsibilities, as a theoretical top litigator in the office, the SLC is expected to be available to handle any sensitive, complex, or high-profile cases as the boss deems appropriate. Allow me to digress briefly. I felt strongly that Monty was making a mistake when he made me the SLC, and I told him so. I wasn't trying to be humble. There were others in the office equally qualified, if not more so, than I. More importantly, as I said, morale had not been good of late. Giving a plum like the SLC to someone with only three years in the office was not going to be well received. 
In U.S. attorney's offices around the country, it's not atypical for an AUSA to have 10 years of experience before he can expect an SLC slot. Matthew was not receptive to my advice, however, and for better or worse, I was the senior litigation counsel for the District of Nevada. I entered his office suite large and luxurious compared to those of line assistants. It was located in the Bridger Law Building across the street from the original Las Vegas High School, which is now a magnet school and a historical site. A row of large windows ran along both of the office's outer walls, offering views of Sunrise Mountain to the east and the high school to the south with the stratosphere tower lurking in the distance. Monty sat behind an oversized, ornate desk, which he brought with him upon his appointment. This beautiful piece of furniture was obviously not government issue, manufactured by federal inmates, nor were the two leather armchairs which faced him. One of the armchairs was empty, the other was occupied by his first assistant, a guy he had inherited from his predecessor, Lee Lutfi. I was invited to take the empty chair. Monty, a very bright, soft-spoken Mormon guy who had once clerked for the U.S. Supreme Court, had a serious look on his face. I was very curious. Was there a problem? As various thoughts raced through my mind, Monty solemnly addressed me. I'm assigning you a career case, he said ominously. Now I was really curious. I felt like a relief pitcher coming into a big game, and I wanted the ball. But I had no idea of the inning, the score, or who was coming up to bat. You have to understand something to appreciate my state of mind at that moment. When someone says career case to a prosecutor, the implications can be mortal. A career case means one with which you will always be identified, one by which you will always be measured, the outcome of which will be indelibly associated with you, and upon which you and your office will be judged. In short, a case which should make your reputation or break it. Monty broke the tension and spoke words which would have a major impact on both my professional and personal life for a long time to come. In speech appropriately measured to match the gravity of the situation, Monty Stewart disclosed to me the biggest news to hit Las Vegas in years. Last night, Steve Wynn's daughter was kidnapped. I thought to myself, holy shit. If you know anything about Las Vegas of the 90s, you know who Steve Wynn is. If you know anything about gaming at all, you've probably heard of Steve Wynn. He was the architect of the reborn Las Vegas, the sparkling desert boomtown, which provided the ultimate entertainment experience. He was the golden boy of the Strip back then. He's been in the news quite a bit lately, too, in rather unflattering terms, but that's not our concern here. Wynn's vision is largely credited with the massive expansion the Las Vegas community had undergone in the 90s. His flagship hotel casino, the Mirage, with a jungle of massive palm trees right on the Strip, its regularly erupting man-made volcano, its white tigers and lobby shark tank was a symbol of the new Las Vegas. Through the Mirage, the Golden Nugget, and Treasure Island, Wynn employed thousands of residents and generated huge tax revenues from which the city, county, and state would benefit. Wynn's wife at the time, Elaine, was involved extensively as both the family and corporate representative in charity work, a major supporter of UNLV and a compassionate person who sincerely wished to help the less fortunate. Each year, she was personally involved in Las Vegas inner-city games. In 1993, Steve Wynn was more visible and probably more powerful than any other figure in the state of Nevada. He was more recognizable than the governor, the mayor of Las Vegas, or any member of Nevada's congressional delegation. Steve Wynn was, at the time, Mr. Las Vegas. It would be difficult to think of any person enjoying greater stature in his community than did Wynn in Las Vegas in the 90s. For this reason, the handling of this case would be the subject of intense public attention and the strictness scrutiny of the media. There were other factors, however, which would place this matter under a virtual microscope. The first family of gaming had been the victim of a pernicious crime. How safe was the new Las Vegas? 
If even the winds were vulnerable, what are the tourists and the families which were beckoned by the bright lights from across America? Monty went on to explain to me that although he didn't have all the details yet, the winds' daughter, Kevin, had been abducted from her home late last night, then recovered physically unharmed several hours later. Only then did her family notify the authorities. That was the good news. The bad news was that the kidnappers had escaped with the ransom which Wynn and his security people had paid before ever contacting Las Vegas Metro Police or the FBI. The sum delivered to a designated drop was $1.45 million in $100 bills. There was more bad news. If I had for the briefest moment felt lucky to be assigned this career case, I quickly reevaluated my good fortune. As of 8.15 a.m., some 10 hours after the crime had been initiated, the number of leads in the case stood at zero, and the perpetrators were no doubt long gone. While it was true that Kevin Wynn was now safe and had apparently been left physically unharmed, she had been through several hours of hell. The 26-year-old, who had worked at her father's hotel since she was 15, had spent the day as product development manager at the Mirage, then grabbed a workout at the hotel gym. Afterward, she met her parents and sister, as well as some family friends at Moongate, a Chinese restaurant in the hotel. At about 9.30, she left with a friend who, like Kevin, lived in the exclusive Spanish Trails Country Club. They drove into the walled compound, past the guards, through the gates. Kevin dropped a friend off and headed for her condo. When she got there, she opened the garage door with her remote control and pulled her car inside. It was a black Audi with the license plate Bianda, Italian for blonde, which aptly described Kevin. The illusion of complete security, which was suggested at Spanish Trails, would soon be shattered in an instant. As she entered her home through the garage, she walked through the laundry room. Entering the kitchen, she flicked on the lights and glanced toward a telephone answering machine, which was by the sink. Thinking she heard something behind her, she started to turn. Suddenly, two figures were running toward her from the living room. Their faces were distorted by a mesh-like covering. They were on her in an instant. One, the smaller of the two, grabbed her from behind and spun her around in order to limit any opportunity to identify them. She had, however, caught a glimpse of a handgun pointed directly at her in the grip of the larger man. It was a three fifty seven loaded with hollow-point bullets. Well, I walked over towards the answering machine, and I had several bags with me, so I was going to put them down, and I was facing my cupboards, and I heard something, so I turned around. And as I turned around, two men came running at me from my living room area and grabbed me. Her immediate impression was that the smaller man was physically powerful. Through the mesh, she could tell that his hair and skin were fair. He sounded authoritative and well-educated. The larger man was dark, not as sturdily built, and sounded uneducated. Her sense that he was probably black, and he was pointing a handgun directly at her head. Then the men covered her eyes with cotton and tape. Kevin had seen all she would see during her nightmare. The young one was petrified and shaking. She assumed that she had walked in on a burglary in progress. That is, until the smaller man said they wanted money, the casino's money. Well, I was shaking. I was petrified. And I couldn't believe this was happening. I, I thought that maybe they were burglars that had broken into my house and I had walked in in the middle. 
I was very scared, so they took me and I was shaking, and the, the shorter man said to the, the, the taller man, grab her, grab her, at which point they grabbed me and turned me towards the towards my cabinets, and they, the, the shorter man kept saying to me, you didn't see us, you didn't see us, you don't, you don't know what we look like, and don't turn around, or don't try to look at us. I was very scared, I, I, was, I was shaking, I said, what, what's happening, what's going on, what, what are you doing? I said, and, the, and the shorter man kept saying to me, calm down, calm down, and it took them a while, I was shaking, and they were just, he was trying to calm me down, because I was, I was trying to, you know, break away. And um, I said, what do you want? And the shorter man said to me, we want money. I said, okay, what money? And he said, we just want the casino's money. And at that point, I was, I, I thought my life was over. I thought that was it because they knew who I was and this wasn't just a random Thing that I walked in on. This was something serious, and they knew who I was, and they, were, they had a plan. That only heightened her terror. Kevin was smart enough to instantly realize that this was not a random crime, that she had been targeted because of who her father was. Now she had genuine fear for her life. They said that they were going to give her instructions, which, if she followed, would result in her release. She would contact her father so that her tormentors could make arrangements with him to obtain the money. First, however, they needed insurance. The shorter man said that he knew the first thing her father would do was to try to find him. He needed to make certain that this would not happen. Kevin was told that she would be required to remove her clothing and pose with the larger man for some pictures. Should she or her family ever report any of this to the authorities, the pictures would be disseminated to the National Enquirer. For good measure, they asked if she knew who Amy Fisher was. That's the Long Island Lolita who'd shot the wife of her boyfriend, Joey Buttafuoco, in the face. I know that the first thing you and your father are going to do is try to come and find me. So I need insurance. You know what insurance is? I said, yes, I think I understand. He says, well, you are my insurance. And, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to have you, t- we're going to take some pictures of you. And he said, and we're going to have you take off your clothes and you're going to take these pictures with one of us and we're going to cover your eyes with sunglasses so that it looks like you were cooperating in these pictures and I started to shake because I thought I'm going to have to take off my clothes and I'm going to be raped and that's what I thought the next thing was so I got very scared and I, I, I started saying please don't hurt me, please don't hurt me and he said at that point that um it would all be over with if I just cooperate. They underscored the fact that Amy Fisher's life had been ruined by the scandal and implied that Kevin would suffer similar humiliation if the police were called in. This part of the crime really infuriated me. The men then retrieved a pair of sunglasses from Kevin's car and placed them on her, concealing the tape and cotton which covered her eyes, making it appear that she was a willing participant. She was ordered to remove her clothing down to her underpants and get down on the floor. As she did, she covered her chest with her arms. The shorter man ordered her to remove her arms from her chest, put them behind her, and lie down on the floor. Now additional obvious fears gripped her. She thought she was going to be raped, and her fear regarding rape was not unfounded, which I will expand upon later. The larger man sat down next to her. 
She was ordered by the smaller man to change positions four or five times. The larger man kissed her hand. Meanwhile, through her eye covering and sunglasses, Kevin sensed several flashes of a camera. Later, the taller man would remark to her chillingly that she was very beautiful and looked very, very young. After the photo session, Kevin made the call to the Mirage, trying to locate her father. He had already left the restaurant where they'd eaten. Kevin told the men she could probably reach him on his cell phone. The shorter man instructed her to call the cell to tell her father that she had been kidnapped and go to the cashier cage. She did it. And I said, Dad, it's Kevin. I've been kidnapped. And I could tell my father was just about to say, what kind of joke is this? And I said, I repeated myself. I said, Dad, I've been kidnapped. It had been just around 10 p.m. when Steve Wynn's car pulled into his driveway. Just as he arrived home, the car phone rang. The hotel operator told him that Kevin was trying to reach him. They put her through, and when she said, Dad, I've been kidnapped, Wynn thought she was joking. But when a man, a stranger, suddenly came on the phone, he knew that she wasn't kidding. The man told him to return to the mirage, go to the cashier cage, and wait for a call from someone named Voss. He said they would be watching and that Wynn should talk to no one for the sake of his daughter if he ever wanted to see her again. I thought it was some... Just pulled my legs some, put on, I, I said, what? What happened next? A man's voice came on the phone. What did he say? He said, listen carefully. We've got your daughter. Go to the hotel. Go directly to the cage, to the casino cage. Stand in front of the cage so that you'll be easily visible. And wait for a phone call. Now the nightmare was Steve wins as well as Kevin's. The fear father and daughter felt at that moment was almost beyond comprehension. The smaller man ripped the phone from Kevin's hands as she started to cry. Stephen was told to go to the cashier cage and wait for a call from Mr. Voss. Kevin was then given back the phone. Steve Wynn told his daughter, Don't worry, honey. I'll handle this. Don't worry. She told him, I love you, Dad. And he said, I love you, too. She thought that this was the last time she'd ever talked to her father. My father said to me, Kevin, don't worry, I'll handle this. Don't worry, honey. And I just said, I love you, Dad. He said, I love you, too. And I thought that was the last time I would ever talk to him. When instructed his driver, Albert, to return to the Mirage, as ordered by the kidnapper during their brief telephone conversation, rather than give in to grief or fear, his mind began working in a higher gear. He shared what was happening with the trusted Albert, who was particularly close to Kevin. Then he thought of Charles Price. Price was black, as was Albert, but he was not a chauffeur. He was a plainclothes Mirage security officer. He resembled Albert physically, but was younger, had police experience, and was armed. Wynn told Albert to find Charles once they reached the Mirage. Albert pulled the car into the driveway behind Wynn's office, a very private affair with almost secret access. They entered through French doors, and Wynn proceeded directly to the cage while Albert sought Charles Price. As he waited by the cage, Price approached him. Wynn said, You are now Albert. Stand over there and do nothing. Don't talk to anybody and don't use your radio. Finally, the cage phone rang. It was for Mr. Wynn. The man who was the CEO of Mirage Resorts Incorporated didn't often visit the cashier cage. An employee handed the cage phone to that man. Voss told him he was doing well and for the sake of his kid not to talk to anyone. He was being watched. Just wait for another call. In a moment, the phone rang again. This time, Voss demanded $2 million in small bills. 
Wynn replied that he didn't think the cage even had that kind of money. But he'd find out. Voss told him to do it. Wynn told his employees to get the cage supervisor. Quickly, a young man named Sean Palmer showed up. Wynn didn't know his name, but he recognized him. Palmer was dispatched to count the money. When he was done, the total of big money, that is $100 bills, was $1.45 million. Voss then asked about the money in the drawers, the small money. Wynn became visibly agitated and told Voss that depleting the cage entirely would result in bedlam. The casino couldn't be run. This would certainly not result in the stealthy, inconspicuous heist Voss had taken so much care in planning. Voss now attempted to calm Wynn down and instructed him to obtain the cash from Palmer. Voss then warned Wynn about giving him any funny money, referring to marked bills or exploding die packs. For the second time, Wynn began to lose the cool he was struggling so hard to maintain for the sake of his daughter. You goddamn fool, this isn't a bank, it's a casino. Then, regaining his poise, he added, I'm only going to cooperate with you. I just want my daughter back. I'm going to give you this money. Meanwhile, as Voss was occupied talking to Steve Wynn, the larger man took the opportunity to strike up a conversation with Kevin. He asked her how old she was, remarking that she looked no older than 18. When the smaller man got done on the phone, he came over to them, and the taller man immediately stopped talking, as if he had been out of line in doing so. The smaller man then informed Kevin that she was going to be transported in her own car to a specified location. She would be left in the car until her father delivered the money. The entire time, she would be watched by someone in a nearby van. Once the money was in hand, her father would be given instructions as to where he could find her. Using a pair of Kevin's hosiery, they tied her hands. She pleaded with them to tie them in front, but they ignored her pleas and tied them in the back, adding to her already desperate feeling of helplessness. Then they placed her in the back of the car and covered her with a comforter from her room. On top of the comforter, they placed several heavy plastic bags. After the initial shock and for the remainder of her ordeal, Kevin composed herself and became determined to remember as much as she could to help the police when this was over. Notwithstanding the enormous stress she was under, she kept her cool and displayed amazing courage. There came a time during the car ride that the smaller man got out of the car and announced he'd be leaving now. She heard the taller man open the passenger door, get out, and then get back in the driver's door. From the back seat where she lay buried and blindfolded, her arms tied behind her back, she attempted to engage the taller man in conversation, just to hear his voice again, so that later she might be able to identify him. She succeeded in getting him talking, and he even asked if she'd like him to turn on the radio, which he did. Kevin was also making an effort to keep track of how long they had been driving, how fast he had been going, where they might be. After a while, the car began going in what seemed to be circle after circle. Kevin was confused at first, but finally concluded that she was in a familiar place. She had gone up and then down the ramps of the parking garage at McCarran Airport many times. After a number of upward circles and a bit more driving, the car went down a corresponding number of circles. Then a voice said, no charge. Sensing that it was almost over, Kevin remarked to the taller man, I hope the money does you good. He replied, oh, it will. You don't come from where I come from. Another short drive, and the car came to a stop. The taller man left. Although she was able to loosen the tights which bound her hands, she dared not attempt escape. They had told her she would be watched from a nearby van. They also told her that if she tried anything, they'd put her in the trunk, a lethal prospect in Las Vegas in July. Meanwhile, amidst agonizing tension, both Steve Wynn and Voss waited for Sean Palmer to return with the casino's money. The kidnapper then issued further instructions. 
Wynn was told that he was going to return to his office and make arrangements for Albert to take the money to the car. Voss asked for the car's phone number, and Wynn provided it. Voss then said Wynn would next be contacted at his office. The other employees were incredulous as the cage supervisor returned and handed a large shopping bag with almost a million and a half dollars in hundreds to the CEO of the corporation on the Mirage, Treasure Island, and the Golden Nugget. They had no idea what was going on. Had Wynn gone crazy? Was he robbing his own place? As Wynn and Charles Price, who was now Albert, headed for his office, they passed through the atrium over a bridge by a waterfall, an area that was always crowded and very noisy. Wynn figured this would be the only place where he could communicate with Price safely. He quickly told Price that Kevin had been kidnapped and that he was going to have to play along as Albert. Knowing virtually nothing more about the perilous situation he was suddenly thrust in, Price said, I can handle it. By the time they got to the office, the real Albert was on the phone. He told his boss, it's them. Voss then gave Wynn instructions for the delivery of the money. Albert was to drive from the office onto Spring Mountain Road and head over to Sonny's Saloon. He was to park the car there, unlocked, with the windows open, and go inside the 7-Eleven, which was next door. Albert was to play some slots and to wait for the ring of a payphone at the 7-Eleven. When Albert answered the phone, he would be told where Kevin could be found. Price put Albert's shirt on and left. While he waited to hear something, Wynn called two of his closest advisors, Jim Powers and Bobby Baldwin, and summoned them to immediately come to the hotel. It was now approaching midnight, and both of them were home, but sensing that something awful had happened, they made it to the Mirage in what seemed like an impossibly short time. They all sat in complete silence, waiting. Steve Wynn, the architect of the new Las Vegas, Powers, the FBI special agent in charge in the past, and Baldwin, president of the Golden Nugget. Powerful guys with plenty of money and connections, sitting there together, frightened to death. The telephone operator called the office. There was a man named Voss who wanted to speak to Wynn. Voss told him, we got the money. Breathe easy. But he added that there had been a mistake. Our mistake, he said. Voss couldn't reach Albert, who was sitting in the 7-Eleven. So he would call Wynn in exactly 15 minutes and tell him where he could find his daughter, who was only a few minutes away. Just after midnight, the final call from Voss came. Breathe easy, it's over. He told Steve Wynn that Kevin was tied up in the back of a car at McCarran in the oversized parking section. Albert, Baldwin, Powers, and Wynn headed to the airport in two cars. Baldwin spotted the Audi first. The cars screeched to a halt. Wynn told the others to stay back. Don't go near the car. This may have been the most frightening, the most torturous moment for him yet, and it prompted perhaps his greatest display of courage. Whatever I was going to find in the car, I was going to find it myself, he said. I wanted it to be me. I took about three steps, and I couldn't do it. At the last minute, I said, God, and I yelled, Kevin, thinking maybe she could hear me. By Wynn's account, I was frightened beyond description and very confused. The impact of this sort of thing is impossible to explain. Your brain is jumbled. Your mind doesn't operate normally. You're terrorized, and you, you can't function. But not unlike his daughter, function he did. I remember that my, uh, my kneecap was shaking, and I couldn't make it stop, and my breathing was short. And all I could think of was Kevin. Wynn would later try to explain how his mind and body responded to the situation. It doesn't relate to any other experience, but everything changes. You're breathing. The voice that you speak to yourself in. The speed at which ideas go through your brain. You can't focus or concentrate on anything. And all I could think of was Kevin, and that someone had abducted her. That someone was cold-bloodedly contemplating killing her. Whose heart wouldn't break for this father, for this family, and what they were going through? After an hour-long eternity as a prisoner in her own car, Kevin thought she heard a voice. 
It was more than a voice. It was the sound of deliverance. Was she dreaming, or was that her father's voice, calling her name from somewhere outside the darkness? She was not dreaming. Steve Wynn, not the casino mogul, but the badly shaken father who had survived a visit to hell, pulled his firstborn child from the car. Embracing his daughter, he reassured her that it's all right, it's okay, it's over. And next time on Vegas Fed, a command post is established, an amazing breakthrough in the case by a veteran FBI agent, and authorities follow leads in Sacramento and Vegas, which point to Newport Beach, California. This podcast was recorded on the campus of UNLV in the studios at 91.5 KUNV Radio with engineering and editing by Kevin Crawl. Content and music copyright 2020, Tom O'Connell.